episode of Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Continuing our trend of examining abstract conceptualizations today, we're looking at particular phenomena, phenomena which have the power to unite people, to instill religious fervor, and to organize and structure vast groups, all without being tangible or even fully explainable in some cases. Thought built around these phenomena is known as mysticism. So uh, this is an interesting topic. I think that in the past we may have thought about doing this one because I was almost convinced we had done it. Yeah, until I went back through our list, which I still got to share with you, um, and found, no, we've talked to, but I know we've talked around it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've, we've sort of reached that that point in the podcast where we've done so many episodes we really can't remember what we've what we've done in the past a lot of time has has gone by so what uh, what is mysticism you know dictionary definitions are not terribly helpful on this although etymology i almost like them for that reason Mm -hmm. i almost like reading the dictionary definitions just to say yeah but that's really not it at all because there's there's powerful implications for that right if your dictionary definition is wrong most of the time, if people hear a word they don't know, or they want to know something about a word, that's the first place that they go. And the that's fact right. that they're so consistently wrong or... Um, or loose. But, yeah. Because you're going to be loose about it anyway. But, but if, for instance, in one of the dictionaries, there's, a, you know, there's usually one, two, three, four definitions. The second definition refers to self-delusion. Hmm. Right, right off the bat, just... Um, and, I, and I don't... I don't hold the editors responsible necessarily for trying to. I think they're trying to present a variety of, of viewpoints. But if that was the first time you hit the definition, then you'd already have the negative mm-hmm. canting toward it. So one definition is, uh, or approach to mysticism is that, oh, bear with me on this. Mysticism is purportedly a a meeting of, a union with, or an experience of something grandly other, a deity, a supranormal or supernatural being or state that supersedes the general roots of, pheno- of phenomenology. The general. So, what I mean by that is, not through your eyes necessarily, not through your logic necessarily, not through your taste, but somehow you have these experiences of an awareness of. We talked about sublimity, an awareness of a sublime, aware, uh, or an, even an active interaction with something much larger than yourself. That's awesome. I I love it when I ask you the definitions at the beginning because very often in just a sentence or two, you hit on all of the different stuff that I'm going to ask you about throughout the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great. They're always a good, a good preview or, or sort of insight into what we'll talk about. But yeah, and I think, I think it's a really good um, description. And I think that a lot of people will know it intuitively because, um, mm. you know, if you think about it, 
in just linguistically in sort of an abstract way, it doesn't really make much sense, right? It's this non-phenomenological thing. You can't see it or hear it or touch mm-hmm. it or even really think, a, you know, understand it with your intellect, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And that makes you say, wait, what? But then if you think about the word mystical and anybody who has had a mystical experience, or if you ask them to imagine a mystical experience, somehow that phenomena is captured by the human experience. You know, you've, we've come across things where you go, well, now based off my senses or based off of my, my logical or rational reasoning, um, this, this thing doesn't really fit. And I think then the question becomes, and it's going to be the main sort of topic of the show is, well, does that mean that there's something out there or does it mean that there are senses that I'm unaware of or that my senses or rationality are integrating in a way that I can't understand or how yeah. does it, how does yeah. it proceed from there? And, 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 and I like that you're approaching it with that, that, that step by step, because I think that's, that's what it's about. I mean, if you take mysticism, uh, another part of the definition would be uh, more descriptive. The mysticism refers to a conglomerate or a cluster of any number of things, whether it's texts, uh, esoteric writing, esoteric art, uh, uh, trances, mm. visions, vision states. Uh, that you know, it's a planetary phenomenon in the sense that it is practiced by religions, probably all religions, but not just religions spiritual disciplines which aren't necessarily religious and so it has a it has a universality that i think that's partly why philosophy does has and needs to explore yeah yeah and you know i think that um it's a it's a touchy topic because like you just mentioned before we started the show right you ran into somebody in a coffee shop and (laughs) You know, they found out you're in a podcast and they said, oh, well, is that, that's just BS in your way through a conversation in front of a microphone, right? And um, I've had similar responses. I had um, a friend of mine once asked when she found out I had a philosophy podcast, she said, oh, is that like, you know, um, talking about astrology or conspiracy theories and stuff? (laughs) I said, well, no, like, but there is an aspect of it, right? Philosophy is, is looking at anything and then using rationality and insight and, and, and logic to, to talk about something. Yeah. And so, you know, naturally over the course of, of a discussion, you're, you're going to debunk things like astrology or, you know, that sort of stuff. But the important part of philosophy is sometimes there will be things that you won't debunk or you will debunk something that is been taken at face value previously. Yeah. And this isn't just a speculation, like that's kind of the history of humankind. If you look at scientific advancements or advancements in human rights or pick your category, any category, right? In every, every category of human experience, there's been philosophers who have said, you know, just because we've been doing this thing the same way all the time, or we've had this same thought about something the same way all the time, doesn't make it right. Or, well, just because people believe that this thing is true or this thing has some power over their life doesn't necessarily mean that it actually exists. So, and, this, and this is where philosophy, I think, bridges that very elegantly. You see, in, you read articles about philosophy and mysticism, and I've been steeping myself in those this week, uh, precisely because 
one doesn't want to just there's always um there's always an impromptu or um uh, a spontaneity in a good discussion but you have to have enough of the material at hand to at least guide the discussion yeah and philosophy bridges very well in talking about this because it often uses the word purported. Mm. So these things purportedly take place in the case of those who present them. And so the experiential uh, experience of, of mysticism or a mystical state or any of the things falling in that category, if you say, well, purportedly, this is what people say, you're establishing a, a bit of a distance. And, a, and a, perhaps just a bit of a skepticism that allows you to still have an open mind, uh, but and to talk about it without endorsing. Yeah, and and that's important because, like you said, with that, with your dictionary definition, there, like the second one uses the word self-delusion, right? Yeah, I think that that's that's the kind of language that really shuts down a, a discussion on something, and um, and that's really not what philosophy is about. Philosophy is always about. Um, it, opening up discussions on things. That doesn't mean that you're going to endorse something or you're going to debunk something. Opening a discussion means that you're you're going to look at it as objectively as you possibly can through through your lens. And so, it doesn't mean that logic can't imply. And as we, as we keep talking, I think this is as as part of one branch of philosophy because um, if mysticism is uh, a, a mode of thought, or indeed any mode of thought. That somehow uh, involves spiritual transcendence. There's a mouthful of an idea, mm. um, and or spiritual illumination, and that goes beyond any ordinary, everyday, mundane uh, experience. Then you've got to have some way of arriving at it, and so uh, Socratic uh, method can work with it. Yeah. What makes this spiritual? What makes this, you know? Yeah. All right. So that's a good opening. So we'll we'll dive into it a little bit. Um, are there different types of mysticism? Yes. There are quite a few, actually. <laughs> uh, but we'll take some of the maybe the, the more ob obvious. There is religious mysticism that's not only located in the Catholic Church, Christian, more broadly, traditions, uh, goes back, goes back, way back, uh, but finds a great deal of expression in the 1300s, 1200s. Um, there's the, but there's Sufism in, in uh, the Muslim tradition. There is, uh, there are aspects of Buddhism and Taoism. And and or or in vision quests in indigenous cultures, so so religion or religious mysticism of of some kind, and then and then there's the spiritual, which not necessarily totally in concert with religious mysticism, and then within that you have different kinds of things such as whether an experience is. There are various words for it, but um, introverted or in internal or external or extroverted. And uh, 
the same kind of words we use to talk about so many different things than you do in psychology, but does, does the experience seem to happen in an outward way or does it happen in an inward way? And then there's monistic unionist, uh, Latin is unio, uh, which uh, means that you are having a, a complete melding with something larger. And in religious terms, that would be with God. In spiritual terms, it might be with soul uh, or the universe. Uh, or the dualistic, which is, oh, I'm having a conversation with these things. I'm meeting them, but I'm still myself. I haven't melted into them. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot of different ways you can experience this, right? There's, like you said, theistic, sort of re religious um, uh, mysticism. Um, monistic, which is more personal in nature, and then um, panhenic, which is sort of a catch-all for any of the ones that aren't those yes. two. Yeah. Um, and scholarly scholarly research on mysticism. This is something that has been looked at um, by by um, scholars. You referred to the one. Um, which was the you know sort of the in the inside versus the outside constructivist versus um I forget what the other one is I, I think constructivist sometimes it's called internalist but I, yeah, yeah yeah so but uh, some of them are I've are more in favor or less in favor than other ones but that yeah that gives us a good idea of the scope of of the different types right um does mysticism have a defined origin in history? Do we have like a, a spot where we can say this is kind of our first reference point to it, or is it something that's kind of always existed? The word, interestingly, does the the in the etymology of it, uh, the the word uh, develops in the seventeen hundreds, but the concept is is discussed back to Diogenes, uh, who we've talked about before in, in ancient Greece. Diogenes might, might remember him being the person living in a barrel and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and confronting people. But The wild dog. The wild dog, <laughs> right. But Diogenes also uh, asserting that we're all, everything in the universe is made of one thing. And so the mystic is someone or the, the Greek version of the word is, is someone who modifies that in some way. Hmm. But the, <clears throat> the most ancient version of the word is uh, it, it, in the Greek, which I can't pronounce, and I won't try right now, um, it means I conceal, because there's always a secretiveness hmm. to a mystic expression of ecstasies, religious ecstasies or spiritual ecstasies. And in, ancient, in the ancient world, there were things called mystery cults. Well, the mystery is based on the concealing and the, the coding and the separate languaging and the, the, the rites and, and rituals and those kinds of things. And that takes people probably to horror movies and, and, and back to conspiracy theories and all that kind of thing. But it really, it's, it's based in, in, in the ancient idea that you if you are joining a mystery uh, cult, because the word cult at that time did not have the uh, accrued meaning that it has now, um, you were agreeing to um, 
uh, expose yourself to ways of joining or meeting with that which is larger than yeah yeah and that's that's going to be the really to me that's the interesting part of the conversation that we'll get into a bit is this the very origin of the etymology right this uh, concept of concealing right yep. because that's such a weird thing that has continued throughout the phylogenic evolution of humanity right is this this idea that there's there's a secret knowledge and that's really fascinating to me um have any famous philosophers been been mystics well some people would disagree with me about this but i'm going to start in the middle uh saint augustine um it has been by some argued that he was a mystic because of the ways in which he tried to discuss and lead people toward God, to think about God and to and to be close with God. Um, there are, were many in the Middle Ages, uh, Saint Teresa of Avila, uh, many who expressed through music. She was she was a fascinating philosopher, but almost nobody in, in, in ordinary terms talks about her. Where that you um, some it's art artistic renditions either through music or through the visual arts of what you see when you meet this other. But then, of course, there are some religions that say no, you cannot in any way present that. This isn't to be made public. This isn't. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think even the word secret and mystery, um, another root of myst mystic or mysticism comes from, uh, it, it means initiate, hmm. or to induct. <laughs> well, you know, we're all initiated into so-called secret knowledge. I, I'm, I'm just throwing the rock down to the other side of the stream that we're in today. <laughs> uh, well, one could argue that many cultural things that, that become second nature to oneself and part of a culture whether it's a little town culture or, you know, going off from there, is not common knowledge to everyone. We learn how to behave in order to get along within that space. What we, what we find out, we don't necessarily always share. Uh, and so there's kind of a mysticism in a strange, tight-knit community. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is where it's important to sort of cast aside the the preconceptions or the accrued meaning of the word that we have mm -hmm. because if if you hear the word mystical or mysticism and you're automatically just taken out oh you know whatever then i think you're going to miss out on the conversation a bit because yeah it's it, it comes back to defining the component parts of what makes up a mystical experience right and i think this idea of secret knowledge is is an important one right because then you have to do the same thing in terms of the meaning of the word with with secret, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what defines a secret? Is a secret something that is willingly withheld from somebody, or is it just knowledge that one is not aware of? Because in that case, being an initiate or you know looking at concealed knowledge, I think that 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 really plays an important part on the overarching conception 
of how a mystical experience is construed and whether you fall into this theistic, monistic, or panhenic sort of <laughs> um, view towards it. Is, is there something that is keeping this knowledge concealed or is keeping a secret and that is going to initiate me? Or is it just knowledge out there that I'm unaware of, which we all have, that I've stumbled across, which has induced, induced sublimity. Yes, yes. yes. And, and th- this is why it connects with, uh, for me, with what you were discussing with Kevin Palmieri a couple of weeks ago, uh, that, that you can go unconsciously through the world. I think he used the word hyperconscious. Yeah. I, I, I found that an interesting term because the, the word hyper has so many implications, but I think that hyper-consciousness might be, well, a, another term for mysticism. Because hyper-consciousness would be hyper-awareness or hyper-attentiveness to things that you didn't even notice earlier. And, I, and for me, that's a more, if not comfortable, I think it's a more embracing uh, way of approaching mysticism. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um you know, I've always, I've always sort of liked the concept of mysticism, um, and I think that part of the reason is because um, I'm that kind of person who, you know, I, I don't know. I, again, hyperconscious is is an interesting term, but um, I'm just somebody who I do pay a lot more attention to things than I think a lot of other people do. Um, you know, one time at work, my boss found a, a dead dragonfly on the ground, and he went to throw it away. I said, "Don't throw that away." So why not? I said, I'm, I want to look at that under the microscope. You know, how often do you get a chance to look at this fully preserved thing, you know? And and I peeled away the different layers of its eyes. You can look at the the different sections of the compound eye and different parts of the wing and things. And you start to see the the sort of universe of things at this level that um, you never get the chance to see because a dragonfly is always in motion. It's always faster than you. It's always blurry. It's always just out there somewhere. And while you were in, so this is this is brilliant. This is wonderful because here's the, I think mysticism must be talked about through examples that people wouldn't necessarily think. I mean, not for nothing did I wear one of my Doctor Strange Master of the Mystic Arts shirts today, right? Because that's how people often look at it. Oh, swirly colors. Or wiggling your fingers and doing things, <laughs> and and that's fun, but and 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 I'm not mocking the the rituals and the the disciplines of various, you know, we'll we'll get to that. But when you were examining that dragonfly, I would guess that for those moments, the rest of the world didn't exist. Mm. Yeah, you were looking at something that we don't normally see, can't normally see without uh, necessarily the enhancement of technology. But but first, you paid attention. You wanted to look at it. Second, you looked at it very closely, and you were studying it. And study is always part of mysticism. Study, the, the discipline of scholarly uh, attentiveness and, and focus can lead you into an altered space. And you don't have to drop pills to it or take mushrooms or anything else, which some people do, the peyote buttons. And I'm, I'm not mocking those things. I'm just saying that altered consciousness or altered state of being does not mean going through things like you see in movies in order to achieve them. 
Yeah, yeah, and some. It's it's really. It's a hard to kind of explain, but yeah, I think that that's study is important, and I think that having an open mind is is halfway to getting there, right? If you don't mm-hmm. if you don't have an open mind, then you're not going to ever be open to studying something. And studying will necessarily having an open mind and studying will necessarily lead you th- to study things that um, may turn out to be unworthy of your study or may lead to results that are different from what you think, like. I'm, I'm also somebody, right, who, um, you know, if I, I, every once in a while, if I see something on Netflix, right, where this is obviously a, a conspiracy theory documentary, I'll still watch it. Not, not very often. Most of the time, I, I'm more geared towards things that I know have some, some value. Um, but every once in a while, I think, well, you know what, this, this seems intriguing, so I'm, I'm going to watch it, right? And I'm going to, you know, you try to keep an open mind and then you try to look at the evidence presented and then you look at the way it's presented or the evidence that's given versus what's excluded and then the conclusions that are drawn, right. (laughs) And you eventually, you eventually get to a a spot where you, you know, you have some, you've come to a conclusion about something. But um, again, I think that that's, that's part of the mystical experience, right, is is having an open mind to study something, but also taking a chance, right? Because if I'm if I'm going to watch a science documentary, right, about let's say uh, climate change, mm-hmm. I'm probably unlikely to have a mystical experience with that because I know the general precepts surrounding um, the premise of the documentary, right? I might be looking to to deepen a body of knowledge, um, but in terms of encountering something that's unknown or you know having some sort of experience of of studying something that is outside of this that has what we talked about in the beginning that phenomenal phenomenological um it exceeds the phenomenological yes. right yes it may be unlikely to experience it so yeah how you how you get into the the mind frame of of experiencing these things is sort of interesting which leads to the question is mysticism necessarily religious in nature. And so we talked about the different types and we said, okay, well, there's a theistic type and then there's these other types. But when you get down to it and examining this experience, you know, we've done an episode on religion. Is mysticism religious in nature at its core, do you think? Uh, Well, initially it was back to the to the mystery calls but one of the reasons that the word mysticism became a formal coinage in the 1700s during the the rational age you know science is launching and so on is is to reflect in uh, an ecumenical which is uh, broadly speaking if you refer to ecumenism it's finding a commonality across religious barriers so you're not adhering to religious specificities there's that but then it takes one more step beyond that so it's um uh, you know really reduced to a joel it's it's the relationship between uh subject and object i really think that that's that's how it it can best be understood. So I'm going to go back to your dragonfly. 
there's nothing inherently religious necessarily in your contemplation uh, on that dragonfly. Now, it, it's possible within yourself that you might have found it a spiritual experience, whatever we mean by spiritual, we can define those as we go, but, or, or, or you might have thought of, of the totality of creation or of the, the incredibility, the incredibleness of, the incredible nature of evolution or, or any of those things. But that object, um, that, that being, now, now just a, a physical, shell uh, led you into a space of intense curiosity if nothing else and that might have consciously or unconsciously led you into larger spaces and thus an encounter with the universe itself hmm. and that can certainly be religious but i think once we we get from the 1700s and moving forward especially into our own time it, it, I think that to say it's religious is to limit it too much. It doesn't need to be theistic in order to be mystic. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think I agree with you. I think where it gets interesting is, right, we've talked about how if you if you click the first article in a Wikipedia page, you have a 95% chance to get to the philosophy <laughs> article, right? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of the same thing um, with a lot of, um, sources of inquiry where we say, okay, well, mysticism, um, in many ways, it's, it's a type of curiosity, um, that's looking at knowledge, which, um, transcends the phenomenological. Um, but I think that that, that sort of line of reasoning, if you start clicking those links, right, uh, mm -hmm. you know, curiosity, um, beyond phenomenological, uh, and you start going back, um, it takes you back right to, to the beginning of the universe, whether it's through um, religious means, right? Like, oh, well, you know, did did a, a, a being design this dragonfly? Or whether it's evolutionary, right? Was there some sort of... Um, pressure of some Yeah, was there some mutations or some pressure or something? You start going back, well, how did, how did this thing develop out of something else? How did life come from something that was non-living? how did matter come in the universe, you know, like, and it comes back to these metaphysical questions. And I think with the metaphysical questions, when you get back, um, there is, I think that there is a lot of, you, you either come down to being religious or I, I guess I should say, and or religious and or philosophical, right? Because religion is necessarily a philosophy, but yeah, I think that, but there's still the distinction, right? You could probably still follow a whole line of reasoning without um, without it being a religious experience. The very title of our podcast expresses the essence of, of one branch of mysticism. Uh, and, and this is where the philosophers argue that mysticism goes way past Christianity or religion itself at, at a point. Um, and, and did, even in the 5th century, there was a, there was a, a philosopher named, well, we call him Pseudo-Dionysus the Areopagite. <laughs> <laughs> now, that just sounds like it's out of a fantasy novel. Yeah. But, if, but, but, but if you look him up, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And um, 
and there uh, and there was an author of a of, of, tract at the, roughly the same time called the cloud of unknowing uh well it wasn't at the same time it was in the 14th century and the mystical spirits uh experience one branch of it that is considered not religious goes back to that where where it is a um a perception of nothingness hmm. from nowhere <laughs> to nothing and and, and, and even in uh, again going going to Buddhism some practices of or, or Taoism there is a, an essence of getting to a state of nothingness hmm. which it which some construe as a state of being totally integrated with, I love this word, the ineffable, <laughs> <laughs> which itself has, is, is a very argumentatively based word in philosophy. But if you're totally integrated, then you are nothing but the whole. Mm. Uh, so, so I think that when you're contemplating the dragonfly, for instance, or when I, I mean, I, you know, this is one, one doesn't perform one's experiences unless you're formally doing a script or something on stage. And that's not what I'm doing now. But when I'm painting, I'm involved in a painting right now that is deeply important to me. And, and when I'm, it, it is a portrait. And, and as I'm painting this portrait, I, find myself taken out of myself or shrunk to the quantum realm of myself i'm not sure which or both in which the the smallest detail of light on skin becomes a geometric form that all together works to take the, the place of a, of a face but you're going down into this these elements and at the same time thinking about the person that you are rendering so to speak, and knowing that you're never capturing that person, but you're capturing the impression of an essence of a moment. Mm. There's something almost mystical in that creative experience for me that transcends anything I ever felt when I was formally experiencing a religion. Yeah, and this this is touching on a lot of things that we've talked about. When you when you talked about um, Buddhism and and being integrated into the whole, it reminds me of our conversation about harmony mm. last week. You know, this mm -hmm. idea of and talking about well, are component pieces necessary? Are separate pieces necessary? Or is it all just sort of an, an aspect of the whole? And I go back to um, Sabine Hassenfelder's book and and our discussion over the past several weeks about um, reductionist science. And even in articles that I just read this morning about how they're going to have to retool the first law of thermodynamics, uh, retooling a law, <laughs> right? And so this, this idea, um, one, one of the sections that stood out to me in, in um, existential physics, right? Talking about uh, worlds within worlds and how um, could the universe be a being that could think? And she said, well, you know, technically it's not ruled out. It would be very slow thinking, but it, mm -hmm. it's possible. But she said, no, if you shrink down to the quantum realm, you, you couldn't have a universe in an, in an atom because um, when you get that small thing, cease to function. And it makes you wonder, 
you know, we were we were joking about it before the show. We both watched uh, Ant Man: Quantum Mania last weekend, talking about well, how are they even breathing down here? <laughs> they, you know, they're they're smaller than the air molecules right. would be. But this idea that, um, you know, again, science doesn't know everything, and some of the very basic foundational concrete aspects of science are being rethought um, in our time based on technological innovations which have shed new light on things that we we previously took for granted which is part of what i just talked about at the beginning about why it's important to examine every concept right whether it's something that might be as um, silly or self-delusional according to the dictionary as mysticism all the way to something that is as concrete or taken for granted as the first law of thermodynamics, looking at something philosophically and taking the information that's at hand and, and rationally examining what, what we know is always an important step for, for thinking about these yes, things. Yes. And um, yeah, and, and the, I think that nothingness is, is a great one. If we haven't done that one, we, we probably should because <laughs> that concept, I think anybody... Anybody who's seriously tried to meditate has probably run into this problem, right? Empty your mind, right? Think about nothing. See how long you can do that for, or if you can even accomplish it for any split second. And this right? is why, yes, and this is why some traditions, even of yoga, of my teacher, and and, and this is like, it's not even seven degrees of separation with some of the, uh, the most influential teachers in the 20th century, the 21st century, that it's not about emptying your mind. And this is where the rationality comes in. It is about imagining yourself, um, putting yourself in a space where everything that comes tumbling out of your mind, you say, you, sit there, I'll get you, you, over here. You come first. So you're contemplating things, but that you are in charge of the order of the dining table. <laughs> and so, right, mystically, <clears throat> mystically, that's interesting, right? Because what we what we had talked about before, um, this these other mis, mystical philosophies um, talking about absolute nothing and trying to separate um, mysticism from religious mm -hmm. um, feelings. I think that I, that idea of nothingness becomes very important, right? Because if you if it if something is not a religious experience and you get back to the metaphysical questions, then I feel like there has to be a nothing at some point, right? Before the big bang, um there's multiverses, right? Or whatever. And you get all the way back to this origin point. You say, okay, well maybe there was vibrating strings or, you know, membranes or something that caused it. But where did these things come from, right? This idea of nothing at all. It, we, we have to do an episode on it. Be, well, yeah, well, but we'll I think that it. it's, it's I agree. very important. Um, what is the difference between mysticism and uh, esotericism? I would suggest just myself that the main difference is that esotericism or esotericism <clears throat> concentrates on obscure, rare, arcane, archaic knowledge, traditions, texts, you know, information, 
but it can be a study for its own sake. Oh, this is an interesting book. A little sideways as a talk as, a, as an example. I'm a, a, an H.P. Lovecraft scholar, published a number of things, not, not huge, but, but I've been interested my whole life, guided by people in the field who are huge, S.T. Joshi being one of them, and the main one, really. But you can study Lovecraft's writing as a literary thing, but Lovecraft has an esotericism running through some of the work in which uh, he refers vaguely it's the vagary that's really interesting to suggest the language cannot encompass mm. what's out beyond us. But he invents things too. Uh, one of them is a book called the Necronomicon, which uh, became uh, subsumed into video games and, and Dungeons and Dragons and everything else, I think. So, and it's just this book of the, ult the ultimate esoteric book of knowledge that you're not supposed to have. But it was a story tool, a literary device, a, a creation in the story. And I encountered people at conferences, of usually young people, and I had to be very gentle because one young man came up to me and said, where can I find a copy of the Necronomicon after I'd done a presentation? And I said, in the stories of H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> no, no, I mean the real thing because we know there's a real thing and it, and it may well have had people's skins as covers. So, no, no, this was an artistic creation. All the rest of that is flim-flammery that itself has become its own artistic, uh, capitalistic great creation. Uh, to anyone's knowledge, there is not a Necronomicon. But so the esoteric wants to be able to touch the book. The mysticist, uh, the, the mystic, of once the knowledge that might be with it. Yeah, I think the important distinction here is a phenomenology, right? The phenomenological experience. I think mm -hmm. that um, esotericism is obsessed with the phenomenological experience, the ability to to tangibly obtain Smell, this knowledge. Touch, right, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So there's secret knowledge and I can tangibly obtain it through reading a book or through you know, a, a piece of art. I think that, yeah, yeah. Lovecraft is the perfect example because there's mysticism in Lovecraft with that stuff. When, when you're reading and, and he says things like a name that can't be spoken, which is sort of Jewish Kabbalah sort of mysticism, yeah. you know, or, yeah, or the um, Cthulhu. Right, right. These, these, you know, beyond, oh, is disgusting or hateful beyond language or yeah, yeah. these sorts of things. That's mysticism. But the Necronomicon, which is probably loosely based on like the Egyptian Book of the Dead or something yeah, like sure. that. Is more esoteric because, I, although in the literary sense it's fake, right? But in in that universe, right? It's it's probably an esoteric text. So I think that yeah, that I think that is a good distinction. Is is the phenomenological experience of the concealed knowledge separates mysticism from esotericism and back to aristotle back to at least as far as aristotle or, or and, and before there is a whole branch called rational mysticism hmm. aristotle said that that the soul seeks to be united with the ultimate which is mind hmm. intellect the, the Greek 
or the you know the word is I've heard it pronounced a couple of ways of it's spelled N O U S but a uh, noose not like the world noose and so the mind seeks ways to rationally find its way and that's what you were doing with the dragonfly yeah and so this leads me to a question I'm really interested to see what your response will be to it because I think that it highlights this amorphous nature of mysticism. Is mysticism the antithesis of agnosticism? Yes. You just keep, you have, ever since I first encountered you, asked the most interesting questions. Is it the antithesis of agnosticism? Yeah. All right, I need to ask a question in return before I, 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 I need a little clarification. Okay. <laughs> so, so by agnosticism, are we agreeing that we're referring to uh, an approach to the universe that says, I'm not sure there's a God? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, um, I, yeah, sort of an ambivalence about metaphysical questions or answers. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't think it would be exactly an antithesis. Uh, because an agnostic is open to possible metaphysical experience that uh, because it's uh, an agnostic is open to the possibility that there may well be something larger than us but it uh, quite probably is not the limitations of a being that is often presented in sacred text hmm. so an ambivalence is yes it's an ambivalent version but it's it's not the same as the, it's not the opposite of something like rational mysticism. Because an agnostic can still seek to know about the universe. Or, or, or Now, a, a rational mystic would still ultimately assert that the, the mind, the capital M mind that we're looking for is a divine mind. Because we only have a, a, sort of this limited vocabulary about how we refer to things. God, gods, uh, supernatural being, a deist, a deity, whatever. So, so a, a divine mind, uh, even if it's just what we might now call a thinking universe, and that's we go back to Sabine Hausen's position on that. So, I don't think it's opposite. Yeah, for me, it's a really it's a difficult <clears throat> question because um, it is. You know, mysticism is sort of built around this idea of. Well, concealment, right? There's concealed knowledge. There's secret knowledge. And a mystic um, is initiated into this secret knowledge, this hidden knowledge. So it's this idea that, okay, there's this thing that um, people don't have access to that I have access to. And agnosticism is almost the opposite of that. It's almost saying, well, you know what? I have access to the same information everybody else has and you can't draw any conclusions of really about what's out there so you know i don't know but i think that where we can (laughs) i think clarifying is is too strong of a word right but i think that where we can start to pick at the um issues with the categorization that are not that our language puts into these terms right is by going back to some of our philosophical pillars, right? And I think that the two are the are most relevant here are ontology and epistemology, right? I think that ontologically, an agnostic can be a mystic, 
um, because the experience of being, right? If you are an agnostic, right? If you don't have those preconceived notions or those religious beliefs about the universe, then I think that that opens up your ability to be curious, your ability to have some of these experiences that are enlightening or that are beyond phenomena that, that cause you to, to have what we would term a mystical experience. But I think epistemologically, I think that probably mysticism and um, agnosticism are mutually exclusive, if not antithetical, <laughs> because the knowledge of a mystic is predicated on the fact that there's some secret or concealed thing that they're initiated into, whereas the knowledge of an agnostic is predicated on the fact they can never know, right? Okay. And so I think that it might be issues with just the terms themselves. Maybe the terms themselves are not accurate to define the concepts that we're trying to attribute to them. I think so. I think so. And I I do like the way you're working your way through that. So now I'm going to pour more mud into it. And you've and I've been contemplating this because it's been part of I think my awareness of things as a teacher for most of the time that I was formally teaching, which is to say that it is mystical, but not in the way that Doctor Strange and all the movies and all the cults and all this, no. And this is this is where people like you know. I'll say something that this is where people like certain governors um, who say that education is about indoctrination. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. They they don't understand what mysticism is. They don't understand what education is. I'm going to put that aside, but but it goes to the same thing. When you go to a university or college, whether it's online, it's live, wherever it is, you are. Inviting yourself into, and have been invited as a standing invitation, capitalistically. (laughs) But more importantly than that, getting past that, you are invited into a conversation. You're invited into uh, becoming aware of knowledge that's available that nobody wants. And that's an esotericism in itself. The secret doesn't have to be a secret. Uh, It's kind of a reverse secret. People want it to be a secret. And they want to call people in education elitists um, because they don't want to know that that knowledge is there and they tell themselves that it's not. And then they can go on living their lives the same way and keeping doing the damage to people that gets done. <clears throat> the mysticism in education is opening your eyes to the knowledge that exists, that is, is as close as a book, a conversation. And thereby growing out of, beyond, deeper, all of those, those terms of who you were because of how it affects your identity because of the knowledge that you are taking in. And, and that is not an indoctrination because that would, an indoctrination says you all must believe the same thing. That's nonsense. That doesn't happen in education. Mm. The people like the Sanders who do that, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. He's presumably he was a teacher at one point. He wasn't a good one. Uh, and I can say that without, because it's mind. It is 
individuality. It is how do you grow from what you've learned and what will you do with that? That's mystic in the sense that you're becoming more one with the entire world around you. And I'm not asserting that it's a Greek mystery cult. But to me, the same, it's a metaphor for that. Yeah, no, that, that's a super fascinating take on it because you're absolutely right when you think about the esoteric or, or some of those other things like a spell book, right? <laughs> so it's supposed to be this secret knowledge that nobody has that everybody wants, but you're right. right. There's, there's no such thing as spells or magic. So the book is really what it is, right? Education is just like that. And I think that you can sort of see this demonstrated by um, and again, it's it's never this clear in real life, right? There aren't two camps. Everybody's on no, a spectrum. No, but no. Um, for illustrative purposes, right? If I tell people I'm getting a PhD in psychology, right? You have a couple different responses <laughs> generally. One of them is people having a mystical view of your capabilities. Some people, I've had people ask me medical questions. I've had you know people ask me questions about all different types of things because they assume that if I have a PhD, I knew some, uh, something about everything. When in fact, a PhD in psychology that I know once told me that having a PhD is just knowing more and more about one thing until you know everything about nothing. Right? <laughs> and that everybody who gets into psychology is just in it to fix their own problems. right? And so he's a funny guy and he was, you know, tongue in cheek and things. But he's right. A PhD, you know, necessarily, you know, if you strip everything else away, it really is just being an expert on one thing. However, I think a byproduct of somebody who is that curious in one thing is that that person, you generally don't find people who are that curious about one thing, or they're a bit odd. Most people who are that curious are just people who love learning, who love knowledge. And so they do have a wide knowledge base. And so these so lay people who have this mystical view of PhDs have probably encountered PhDs who seem to know something about everything, right? On the other end, you have people who view people who have PhDs as the guy in the coffee shop, right? Who, right. When, who was talking about our philosophy podcast, right? Or those, these sorts of things. People who think, okay, well, these are just people that went to school and you know what? They, they learned a bunch of complicated words that nobody else can understand and don't really have any meaning or have the same meaning as simplistic words, but they choose to use big ones just to try to conflate their own right, intelligence right. with people. And so, um, you know, really, they're, they're just frauds. They're just shams, right? And I think that those two viewpoints are directly correlated to people's experiences with education. And I think that that's you can use that as sort of a crossover into mysticism and into esotericism a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. I think people's reactions to those words are going to be similar in how what has people's prior experience been with the concepts of mysticism or agnosticism or education. And, or and most of those experiences are about what other people have told them, yeah, before they ever have the experience mm -hmm. or uh, the judgmental things that that are said about it. No, I, yeah, what's your, what's, your, what's a, a doctorate is a symbolic, formally uh, granted degree indicating that you have the, the most intensive mastery of a subject that is available at that moment in that sub branch of that subject 
you've been studying. But no one who takes education seriously stops at the doctorate and says, that's it, I have nothing else to learn. Right. Because <laughs> that's where this is where Taoism or, or Buddhism comes in. This is the Zen cone. <laughs> this is of when you've mastered something, you realize that you know almost nothing and you must keep learning and you must keep trying and and that is a life's work yeah because if you look at if you look at a field of knowledge right the field of knowledge isn't growing at its core at its roots at its center it's growing at the edges right and so that core and the roots that's the stuff that you're learning that's the foundation that's the stuff, stuff you're learning in middle school in high school in your associates in your bachelor degree when you get into your master's and your doctorate you're starting to learn things at the edge of the field and the edge of the field is what's growing the fastest. So as soon as you finish your doctorate, some of the things that you've learned are already outdated, and there's new things that you don't know that are coming into view. So yeah, it's really it's you it's very you momentary. You, you, you are the James Webb Telescope. Yeah, when you've received, achieved a certain degree of your education, which is to say, following what you just said, you're looking at the edge of the universe, and dang. It keeps changing because we keep finding things. And that causes us to rethink the law of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. And if you were ideologically trained, you would accept blindly something that somebody told you you must say at all times in order to be a good citizen. <laughs> if, if that's not what mysticism is about. That's not what no. education is So... Is mystical experience a manifestation of sublimity, do you think? Mm. That would imply that sublimity is actively involved. <laughs> <laughs> that sublimity manifests this thing as if to stretch out a 10, 10 15, 20-fingered hand and say, here, this is the way to me. I, and, this, I think they, and this gets back to our initial <laughs> question at the beginning of the episode, right? Is this idea of, well, is that is our extra phenomenal mystical experience actually caused by something else, or is it an integration of our phenomena that we don't understand? Well, right? that's the internal and the external, isn't it? Um, go back to the dragonfly. Do you, do you look, thinking about that experience, were you consciously moved by something saying to you, what are you doing with that? <laughs> uh, did you feel that or did you just say what? No. Right. So I think the, like you said, there was, there's just this, you start looking at it and you start realizing that this tiny organic machine, right, is much more complicated than you thought and that you have no idea how it got to being what it is. But back right to the first moment when the guy's sweeping it, Picking it up. What was your first response? Yeah, I, I, I just immediately stopped him and wanted the dragonfly. I think because there was a novelty to it, right? I never found a dead dragonfly. Would you say that was internal or external? Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's the interesting question, right? And this this goes into developmental psychology, right? It's that idea. Was there a stimulus of seeing? <laughs> is there a stimulus of seeing a novel thing which caused the response of um, wanting to investigate it, or was there some pre-existing um, 
cognitive structure that identified this thing as being something that would was important to my development. It was a confluence of both. Yeah. All right. And and if so, did the sublime give you a push? Who am I to say no? <laughs> but it's kind of circular because whether the sublime gave you a push or your innate curiosity gave you the push, ultimately you ended up at a moment of sublimity. And I think that that's the issue with sublimity and, and mysticism is that an important part of the definitions of them is that they're, they're extra phenomenal, right? You don't know where they come from or how they, how you interact. And, and, but you can talk about how you interact with, you, you can speculate on where they come from. That doesn't necessarily lead you to anything, but the, but the, the rational or, uh, Ethical? Does that come from a bad place? Am I going to do something wrong? Do I really want to do something vile with this? Or is it just, it's dead? I want to look at it. There's ethics involved in that. There's aesthetics involved in that. Thus, there's philosophy involved in that. And where it comes from is speculation. But why or how you interact with it, there's some speculation on that too. But the fact of the interaction and what you do with it, that you can break down very rationally. Yeah. So, is mystical experience perceptual or interpretive? <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so, when you say perceptual, are you saying, is it phenomenological? Is it located in our senses? So, here's, the, yeah, I, I ran across an interesting thing doing the, the research for the episode, yes. which is that most of the scholarly work on mysticism Mm -hmm. has rejected the idea that it is interpretive and has accepted the notion that it's purely perceptual. So in other words, as you're coming across, that's true. when you have a mystical experience, it's really just sort of the overwhelming of your senses rather than a future reflection on what occurred. I I, I disagree with the current, (laughs) respectfully, because I don't have the... The degrees, <laughs> right, uh, to formally engage, but I have the right to formally engage as a person who practices philosophy. And I disagree because of the, the aforementioned um, artistic experience. You look at a piece of paper. It's a fascinating piece of paper, just as paper. Now, somebody will listen to this and say, he's a madman. <laughs> yeah, I'm staring at a piece of paper that's all crumpled thinking it's a packing piece of packing paper out of a box wouldn't that make a fascinating locus or a painting and then you start looking at the contours and you start finding the values of light and then something says to you how would a portrait work on a piece of paper like this? now the moment I say how would I'm engaging in some kind of pre-thinking about interpretation. Mm. Whereas when I'm just staring at the paper because it's fascinating to stare at, that's perceptual. Yeah, yeah. and so, yeah, here's where it gets really interesting is because defining where the mystical experience starts and ends, I think that we can agree that it's in the perceptual. Definitely Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. perceptual. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. But 
our descriptions of mysticism up to this point have said that it's extra phenomenal, even to the extent that it goes beyond the intellect. And I think that maybe what the scholars are getting at is that when you get to the interpretive portion, right, after you may not even be over the perceptual mysticism, but I think one, they're saying they're thinking once your intellect kicks in and you start trying to rationalize the experience, that's when the mystical experience ends. And I don't think that I agree with it either because this is going to, and again, this, I'll be a madman with you, right? Because this happened to me yesterday. I opened up my cupboard and there's a box of Triscuits. And on the side of the box, it says three steps. One, um, cook, cook the wheat. Two, weave the wheat. Three, enjoy a golden brown snack. And I said, wait, we skipped a whole lot. <laughs> I said, if you've ever looked at a Triscuit, how do you weave those individual fibers together, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought about that for probably 10, 15 minutes. I haven't looked up if there is a How It's Made video yet. I, I <laughs> You will. <laughs> but, but if you look at a Triscuit and you see these tiny little wheat fibers, mm-hmm. and you go, those are woven together. How do they do that in an automated process, in a way that is financially feasible and is you know efficient in a manufacturing context? How? How is it done, right? So, you know, it's, again, it's one of those things that, where, to me, in that case, Maybe there wasn't even a perceptual, I didn't need to see a Triscuit, but the interpretive part, all of a sudden, my intellect and my sort of, um, my ideas of my perceptual experience were overwhelmed, right? Where I said, oh oh my gosh, like who, who sought this up? Who designed it? Who developed it? How is it done? It's, you know, it's going back to, you know, Asimov and saying, or uh, Clark and saying, any technology which is sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic, from right? Magic. Like, right. Well, this is this is advanced enough for my simple brain that it's magic. Yeah, a I, Triscuit, a Triscuit uh, is magic Trisket to me. I don't understand that. Now, not to put a damper on it, because I, yeah, you're a madman right there with me. And I won't accuse Triscuits of this, <laughs> the manufacturer of Triscuits, because I don't know that about them yet, but I of this morning, um, my my knowledge of the world was extended in a way that I'm saddened by, because knowledge is not always a happy thing, gainful thing. Um, the number of children, primarily immigrant children, who are here without their parents. Close to a couple hundred thousand, many of them are working at night on as child labor in, well, for instance, uh, packing Cheerios. <laughs> Once every 10 seconds, a girl who's 12 years old has to take a plastic bag of Cheerios and put them in a box. Avoid the cutting machine that's doing the stuff and grabs the thing and put it in. Now, the process is still magic to make those Cheerios, but the esoteric knowledge that ordinary people wouldn't want you to have (laughs) because it's too ugly and grim is that that's at the the peril of people, of kids who get hurt or getting paid next to nothing in the 21st century in the United States in order to make, not the Triscuit, the Cheerio. But... But I, but it, the reason I bring that up is just piggyback on what you're saying. There is a mysticism in realizations of things. 
and knowledge can overwhelm. And it it is um, the other mystery in knowledge is why such things would take place. And that can move one to want to make changes. So there's power in it. Knowledge is power, but it's a mystical kind of power that can become a social kind of power. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think that, and that goes back to what we were saying with, with education, right? With this idea of the PhD, right? Is this monolithic sort of title, yeah. when in reality, it's a fleeting thing practically, right? In practical sense, it's a fleeting. I think you mentioned on a show a while back that you knew um, somebody with a PhD. They got a PhD 25 years ago and they didn't do anything with it, but they yes. still like to act like an authority on something as if the, the state of knowledge remained static, right? Right. And um, I think that that's, they didn't learn their Jedi lesson. And that's an, yeah, and that's an important part of, of the mystical experience is, is this encounter with, with something that's unknown. And I think that the perceptual part of it kicks in right away. Um, but yeah, I thought that that was an interesting take that the scholars didn't view mystical experience as being interpretive. And that's, that's the only conclusion that I can come to is that their, their line of reasoning for that is, saying that once you attempt to make, um, once you bring your intellect into it, once you t begin to rationalize it, the mystical part of it disappears. But when I think about um, things like um, dreams that I've had, right? Mm. Obviously, the, the experience of a, of a strange dream is, is mystical. Um, but even after waking up um, and trying to put the pieces together, for sometimes years trying to put the pieces of the dream together to, to make sense out of it, it's still mystical, right? It and is. I think that I think that or can I, be. not yeah. every dream, but some dreams, yeah, jaguar dreams or or, <laughs> yeah. or, or you know uh, uh, other parts of a house dreams, and you keep going back to them, and you think and there are all kinds of psychological things probably going on and experiential things going on, but there's still an attempt to go further with the mystery. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, oh man, this is this is a fun one. Yeah. Uh, until next time. Keep on